Welcome to Look Ahead 2018, a series of podcasts by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA, discussing the events, trends and processes to watch out for in the coming year. I am Paola Buonadonna. Today I'm joined by NISA's director, Professor Jajit Chada, to talk about the price of Brexit. Judge it, the UK and the EU seem to now have reached agreement on one of the most difficult, fraught aspects of the negotiations, Britain's exit bill. What and why does Britain have to pay to leave? It's not really paying to leave. Um, the budget is something that's been agreed over a number of years uh, prior to the referendum results last year and continues to 2020 under most of the arrangements. So these are commitments that the UK has already made under the MMF, and it, the UK has an obligation to continue in these frameworks. For example, I'll give you a practical example. If a bridge uh, has been agreed to be built, and the bridge building starts next year, you can't suddenly say we're not going to fund that bridge. That is going to have to happen. There are a number of obligations over many years that the UK has to continue to pay for. What we had um, the Friday before last was an agreement in principle on the EU budget. So a decision as to the kind of things we're going to continue to pay for and the extent to which we can wind down those obligations over the next few years. So the correct way to think about this is that we have an appro- we have a bill at the moment that we pay the European Union to participate that's a net bill of around 9 billion uh, a year, which is about half a percent of GDP. And rather than it, there being a sudden stop in March 2019, it will be gradually unwound uh, so that by about 2030 it will toe to zero. So you can think of it as around a £4 billion bill a year over 10 years, which gives you somewhere to around 40 to €50 billion Euros to be paid, around 2% of GDP. That still sounds like a massive sum, mm. particularly if you were among those who voted mm. for Brexit to, mm. in order to stop sending money to Brussels, mm. so to speak. Mm. But... Put it in context for us, how much will this sum impact on our public finances over, over that period? Well, if it was a payment in one go, it would be 2% of GDP. So 2% of the output of the country would be handed over in a lump sum to the European Union. But no one thinks of it as being paid in that form of lump sum. It's something that will be paid gradually over a number of years. So indeed, the current net contribution is somewhat less than half a percent of GDP. So we can imagine gradually moving from half a percent of GDP to zero over a number of years, where the accumulation of that would be 2%. So it's not something by itself that would be a bullet of a 2% payment. So we should really treat it in that context rather than necessarily uh, a payment that has come from nowhere. It's the natural set of obligations that we have already entered into, that as a as a decent country that tries to do the right thing, we ought to not be um, hard-pressed or pressing hard not to pay. And presumably the rest of the world, um, other countries with whom we hope to enter into trade agreements in the future, are watching. And uh, if Britain were not to meet its obligations, that would, uh, that would not be good for well, Britain's image. Well, I, I, I think about image, I, I could think about image, and that, that might matter, it might matter for reputation. But I'd also want to point to the simple um, reality that um, we, we have these obligations. We, we are members of the European Investment Bank. We have other obligations through the European uh, Central Bank and uh, commitments to refugees in Turkey and other European trust funds that we have agreed to undertake. Mm-hmm. 
And those are not things that I think, as an advanced and civilised country, we should ever entertain in moving away from. When it comes to new trade agreements with new countries, I, I think it's a fresh sheet of paper and we want to decide exactly how to proceed. And there may be a large number of things that are brought to bear on, on those questions at that time. But uh, certainly as a country, I wouldn't like to see a country that doesn't or has not reneged on its debt since the stop of the Exchequer in the late 17th mm -hmm. century to now go around reneging on obligations it has to the European Union uh, some three or four centuries later. So we now know that talks on future trade relations will begin mm -hmm. in 2018. But what are the chances, do you think, of a final deal being agreed in 2018? Um, very, very small. Um, sitting down and agreeing the exact nature of the deal without um, having set out clearly what the objectives are may be very hard indeed within the space of a year. The best thing to try and aim for would be an interim agreement of some sort that may start at the end of the Article 50 process that would allow many of the issues to be ironed out over some two-year period subsequently. I think that's the best thing that we should be aiming for, and that would minimise disruption, I think, and also minimise the uh, chance of a hard break or some exit. Uh, I believe the current language is a cliff edge from which we would just fall out of the European Union in a nasty heap, um, and I think that's something we'd very much want to avoid. Time is short. Uh, the agreement on the budget, which I must say was relatively easy, has taken over a year. Um, therefore, I can't imagine that agreement on trade, which is much more complex, particularly if we add in services as well, can be completed within the, this appropriate timescale. Again, it may just be principles we end up agreeing rather than detail. But that's all we've agreed as of uh, December the 8th anyway. So in that sense, should the financial settlement be thought of as part of the bigger question of the whole exit deal and thus subject to some form of renegotiation, if you like? Uh, I think this particular financial settlement, as I've said a number of times, is something, simply a continuation of obligations that we have. Yeah. Um, if there are additional requirements to us in order to access trade markets in some form of Canada mm. deal or some form of Norway mm. deal, that is strictly additional to what is already in place. Whether we want to push very hard uh, once we get the final nature of the deal in one dimension or the other, that's really up to the, the government and our, and our leaders and our beloved politicians to decide what to do. But I think as far as the budget question is concerned, this is something that... that uh, has been agreed upon in principle. We have an idea of how much it's going to be and what it's going to impact on the budget um, or the fiscal position over a number of years. What we do next is another thing to assess, another problem to face. So we are looking uh, still at, at a fairly long period of uncertainty because mm -hmm. um, uh, the uh, Brexit itself won't, won't happen until March 2019. Mm. After that, we might have a further two years mm. of a transition mm. period. Um, we've talked about the price of this exit mm. bill, uh, but what is the wider cost of Brexit in terms of, the, of this continuing uncertainty in years to come? Well, it, it's something the Institute was very clear about before the referendum results. Uh, we, we haven't got a position on whether the country should leave or remain, but what we can do is outline the impact on the economy. And one of the strong transmission mechanisms of a, a prolonged negotiation was uncertainty. Uncertainty means that firms cannot know the size of their revenues or the geographical origin of their ref revenues, looking into the future, peering into the future. So as a result, there's an advantage from them from delaying investment, delaying new hiring plans, and indeed to the extent to which we also rely on FDI, foreign direct investment from abroad, 
There's all kinds of firms from abroad who may themselves delay their current plans to invest in the UK until they understand the nature of our trade agreement. So all these ideas about delay being related to uncertainty were ones we were very clear about beforehand. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the economy this year is exactly that decline in business investment relative to what we might have otherwise anticipated. Yes, there's been growth in business investment of around 2%, but it's not enough um, given the gap in the capital stock. That's the accumulated levels of investment given to the capital stock. Would have expected investment growth more in the region of 5 or 6%, or between 4 and 6% this year. So there seems to be a material reduction in the growth of investment, and we think the most likely explanation of that is the uncertainty over the deal over exiting the European Union. Indeed, there have been a number of um, surveys of decision-makers at the decision-making panel, as it's called, and the big driver of uncertainty in their mind is the nature of the future trading agreement with the European Union. It seems to be causal. So in that sense, it's already impacting on the economy. Now, there are a number of studies out there about the overall impact on the economy. Our view was that it was going to chill the economy by some 1% of GDP. Let us suppose we overestimate it was only half a percent of GDP. Well, that's pretty near to the amount that we're paying to the European Union in terms of uh, budget access. So the cost is that almost equivalent, in a sense, to what we might continue to pay. So it's very interesting that the extent to which the economy has, has, has been chilled by this uncertainty is also the same as the amount that we were supposed to save by leaving the European Union. I think that's one of those remarkable equivalences that sometimes pop up from time to time, and it seems to be there in the data. Uh, it's not something anyone relishes. We're very sad to see the economy growing less fast than it should otherwise have done. In our November 2017 uh, review, we looked at the growth rate of the UK compared to the so-called OECD set of economies, and we can already see a material chain difference between the growth rate in the UK and those economies. And it's a sad fact that that seems to be driven by the uncertainty that I've just been talking about. In fact, it's a rather good thing that those economies are growing faster. There they are in recovery, and they seem to be returning to their pre-crisis levels of growth. Because in conjunction with our depreciated exchange rate, that's contributing quite a lot to the growth rate in the economy right now. So we would be in even more dire straits were the rest of the world not growing. And what can we say now about the nature of that future trade agreement? We have a, we have a given trading structure in the world. And, and of course, the, the economic result is the, the, the extent to which we perturbate it the least, the extent to which we impose f- the fewest costs possible will lead to the best outcome. We have very free open trade with the European Union. It counts for some 50% of our overall trade. It's good to try and think about a trade agreement that maximises that level of trade. Now, the only way we can do that um, and leave um, um, the European Union is some form of agreement along the lines of Norway, which allows us free trade access but limits our ability to influence the trade agreement. It cannot, however, be a permanent position. Because the UK, in a sense, is too large to continually accept sets of trade agreements from a large trading partner. It would want to get involved. So the hope for some immediate agreement that allows us to participate and yet also trade fully is something that's going to be very hard within a very short period of time. That then means we have to work very hard with trade agreements with the rest of the world. There's a large number of countries in the world, and that's going to occupy a large amount of time. What we might have to do is trade with multilateral blocks and decide that we trade with how we're going to trade with NAFTA, how we're going to trade with East Asians, treat with them as bunches of blocks that we're 
trading with individually. The only problem there with that argument and pursuing that is that we're a relatively small country compared to these very large trading blocks. And there'll be a question mark as to how much we'll be able to influence the terms of trade in those directions. But this is the path we've started upon, and uh, it will certainly be interesting to see how it develops. It is likely to be painful and drawn out, and uh, it'll be a very interesting time for British business to respond to what we might think of as challenges, but less generously we might think of as the problems ahead. I'm sure we could talk about this for hours, but I'm afraid this is all we've got time for this week. You can find a whole series of Look Ahead 2018 podcasts, as well as blogs and publications on our website on www.niesr.ac.uk. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.